Good morning. This morning our scripture reading is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. And we'll also place it on the screens behind me. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is, not, is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my, my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority. But speak just as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do these things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Dylan. Well, it's great to be uh, together this morning and to see all of you here as we continue uh, to study our way through the Gospel of John. And this morning, uh, as we get to this particular passage that Dylan read for us, I I think it's important for us to uh, be reminded that we're in an ongoing conversation, not just when we're at church, but really in our culture at large, about the nature and character of God. Um, You can see this played out really on an almost daily basis in the news media Uh, And in our increasingly uh, secular humanistic culture of the West, the media often downplays the issue, but when you watch the news and you hear about some of the tension and turmoil around the world, uh, much of it has to do with a pretty serious theological question. And and there are lots of political overtones, and people talk about that a lot, and there there are lots of uh, issues that come up when when it comes to different cultures and how different cultures uh, get along with one another. But, But really, you can't be a thinking person and not watch the news and understand that underneath all of that, there's a more fundamental question, and that is, what is God really like? Uh, That's kind of what you see played out uh, in the tension between uh, those who are extreme uh, 
Islamic terrorists and, and, and those who would say that they're either secular humanists or maybe they follow some other world faith. What is the nature and character of God? Uh, maybe you've seen some of the controversy about whether or not God of Islam, whom they call Allah, is the same as the Christian God. And you can read different articles and debates about that. But the reality is, whatever you call him, our concept of God can be so different that even if you call him by the same name, we are often referring to very, very different gods. Even people, I would suggest, in the room today may talk about God and mean something very different from one another. So even more important than knowing what we call him may be knowing what his true nature and true character is. And how do we do that? How do you understand who God is? How do you understand what God is like? Maybe some of you are here today, and that's a question that you've had sort of sitting in the background of your mind and your thoughts Uh, Maybe that's why you're in church today. You're seeking an answer to that question. Maybe you came with a friend who knew you were seeking some level of understanding. And I'm glad that of all days you would come, you would come today. Because I want to talk to you specifically about how Christians pursue an understanding of who God is. Because that has been the pursuit of every world religion and is the pursuit of every major world religion. Who is God? What is he like? And how can we know him? So I want to just tell you this morning that the Christian method for knowing God is not through mystical experience. Although, for many of us who have come to know Jesus, we would say that coming to know Jesus and encountering Jesus is a mystery. It is a mystical experience, but that's not the primary way we come to know God. It's not through uh, transcendental meditation. Uh, It it is not through secret knowledge, although we would say that as we've come to know God, we understand that there are great mysteries about God that are revealed in his word, but we don't primarily come to know God through secret knowledge, nor do we come to know God primarily through religious experiences, Although we practice religious rituals as a way of teaching and communicating the truth that we have learned about God in the Bible. So if it's not through mystical experience, if it's not through secret knowledge, if it's not through religious ritual, uh, what is it? What is it? We come to understand God through a relationship. Christians believe that you can only understand God through a significant relationship with him. And this is different from any other worldview. If you were to study the great, uh, the great religions of the world, uh, you would not find any of them that say that you come to know God through a relationship. They would all talk to you about coming to know God through studying ancient scriptures. They would talk to you about knowing God through transcendental meditation, through religious rituals, through, an, through uh, obtaining secret knowledge. They would talk about knowing God through all of that. But the claim of Christianity from the time of its beginning has always been that we come to know God through a relationship. Through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's been a radical departure from the, re- the expectations of the world. People don't instinctively believe that they will come to know God through a relationship with him. Actually, they think, I need a relationship with God, so therefore I need to know God. Rather than understanding that the relationship is how you come to know him. How do you have a relationship with a God you can't see, with a God you can't touch, with a God who seems out of reach? And so the teachings of the church has been that you come to know God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we believe as Christians 
that Jesus is not a prophet who came to give us a message about God, although Jesus is in fact a great prophet. We, we don't believe that Jesus was just a priest who came to mediate between man and God, although we do believe that Jesus is the ultimate priest who mediates between man and God. We believe that Jesus is in fact God in flesh. That God, to make himself known to us, wrapped himself in flesh and came and lived among us, lived on the earth. And that it's through understanding Jesus, this God-man, that we get a picture of who God is. And this isn't something that, that the followers of Jesus claimed about him. This is something that Jesus claimed for himself. Many people would say, well, Jesus never made that claim. Jesus never claimed to be God. It was later on after his followers began to teach. It was, it was the church. As the church began to develop, they, they began to say that, oh, Jesus was God. But he never said that himself. I would invite you to read the New Testament. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on your own. Make the decision for yourself. You can find throughout those Gospels that Jesus repeatedly claims Not just to be a messenger from God, not just to be a priest of God, not just to be a prophet of God, but to be God himself. And the passage that Dylan read for us uh, is one of seven different passages included in John's Gospels. They're called the I Am statements in the Gospel of John. And as we make our way through the Gospel of John, I think it's important for us to remember that John put his Gospel together in a way that was different from all the other Gospels. Um, John, John was trying to uh, give some very important uh, but very subtle information about who Jesus was and what Jesus came to do. So seven different times in John's gospel, he uses these I am statements. And, and I want to just kind of review them with you. You can write them down, read them later. I'd encourage you to do it. Every one of these statements is an analogy that Jesus is using, but there's something deeper behind the analogy that points to the actual claim that Jesus is making to be God. So here, here they are. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Today in our passage, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. We'll talk about that in a minute. John 10, he said, I am the door. John 10, he also said, I am the good shepherd. John 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And John 15, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. All of these I am statements play an important part in us understanding who Jesus came to be. And by understanding who Jesus was, we come to understand the the true character and nature of God. And so uh, this particular passage that Dylan read for us, I want to just look at it. It's, it's kind of, it can be tedious when you read it. It, it. it may seem to cover a lot of material and, and it doesn't have a storyline in it. There's not uh, a miracle in it. And so it, it may be hard to kind of grasp exactly what he's saying. And I want to just give you a Bible study technique that you can use if reading the Bible is something that's a challenge for you. One of the basic things you can do is go back to 7th grade English and remember what your 7th grade English teacher told you. To ask those basic questions. The the questions uh, that we all know when, where, what, why, and how. When, where, what, why, and how. And so if we take that idea and we look at this passage in John 8, what can we learn about what Jesus is saying to us when he says, I am the light of the world? So the first question for us today is, when did this happen? When did this happen? And the answer to that is actually found in chapter 7, in verse 37, where John tells us that all these events took place on the last day of the great feast. 
Now, the last day of the great feast is referring to a very particular Jewish festival that was happening in Jerusalem. And Jesus had gone back into Jerusalem to celebrate this with all the people who gathered there. All the religious leaders were there. Everybody who's anybody was in Jerusalem for this celebration. And it was called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And what this feast was a, was a remembrance of was a time in the Jewish history when Israel had been slaves in Egypt and they had been delivered out of slavery and they wandered around in the desert for 40 years. And as they wandered in the desert for 40 years, God miraculously provided for them. He provided food for them. He provided water for them. He provided shade from the sun. He provided warmth for them at night. All of this was provided for them over the 40 years. And so this festival was an annual time to get together and remember all that God had done. And in the middle of this festival, Jesus begins to teach and Jesus begins to challenge what the religious leaders are saying because he is pointing to himself as the fulfillment. In John chapter 7, when they began to celebrate the water that God poured out of the rock to give them water in the desert, Jesus said, I am the spring of living water that has come. And so that's when this was happening. But where did it happen? We also know where. In in chapter 8, verse 20, John tells us that these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Now that's kind of an interesting thing to say if, if you look at the end of that. But no one, had, no one arrested him. That should clue us into something. That, that something controversial was happening here. That John and the other disciples, the other people in the room, must have been surprised that there weren't any consequences for what Jesus was saying. And in particular for the place where he was saying it. So, so we know that there, this was sort of a controversial statement. We also know that in the treasury was an important piece of furniture in the temple. And it was, this, uh, it was this candelabra, this elaborate candelabra that would be lit during the celebration every night as a part of the festival of tabernacle or the festival of booths. And the reason this candelabra would be lit was to remind the Jews that while they were in the desert... Uh, there would be a pillar of fire that God would present himself as in the middle of the night that would guide them. It would provide warmth for them. This light that appeared to them at night was, was a significant part of the experience. For 40 years, every time the sun would set, there would be this pillar of fire, and the pillar of fire would lead them to the place where they were to go. And during the day, the pillar of fire would become a cloud, and they would follow the cloud. So in the daytime, it was a cloud to shade them from the desert sun. And so this candelabra in the treasury was lit every night of the festival as sort of a a mark that, hey, this is what God did for us. He provided a light in the darkness for us so that we could find our way. Now, we know this is the last night of the celebration, and that's also significant because on the last night of the celebration, the Jews don't light the candelabra. So Jesus is in the treasury, the candelabra is there, and it is not lit. Now, this would be a little bit like, I don't know about you, um, if you are one of these people who decorate for Christmas, and then how many of you enjoy taking Christmas decorations down? I know a lot of you... Not one hand. Let that be noted. Okay, so it's a little bit like it's a little bit like in, in your house after Christmas with the Christmas decorations. Isn't there something kind of depressing about that? I mean, it's just it's just you know all the celebration is over, the family's gone, you know, the, you're you're still eating the leftovers, and there's that tree, 
And maybe you don't even light it after Christmas anymore. So the candelabra in the temple, in the, in the treasury, was a little bit like your Christmas tree after Christmas is over. It was a reminder of a celebration that had passed. And it's a long time until it comes around again. So that's kind of where this was happening. Now, what did Jesus say? So we know when he said it. We know where he was. What exactly did Jesus say? Well, let's look at it again. Chapter 8, verse 12 in particular. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, in this one verse, Jesus gives us a lot of information. And I want to look at it because he makes a claim He makes a condition, and he also offers a promise. So let's look at each of these. The claim that Jesus makes is pretty simple. He says, I am the light of the world. Now, we know if you think about light from a practical standpoint, light does some things for us that that you may take for granted on a daily basis, but believe me, if the sun were to stop shining tomorrow, we'd all know it. The The light, first of all, it gives life. If you read the book of Genesis, the very first thing that God created, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And the reason light was first was because there couldn't be any life without it. Light gives us life. We, we know that, that, that in places where there is complete and total darkness, it's very limited the things that can survive and live there because light is essential for life. The plants that we see. If you remember, I'm taking it back to 7th grade English, now back to 7th grade science. You you remember photosynthesis, how light, how plants get their food, they they, they get their nutrients from the light, and then in turn, animals get their nutrients from the plants. So everything is essential, life is essential, it's provided through light, but it does more than that. Light also provides us with the ability to see. Light also helps us to understand what truth is. If you are ever in a room at night in the dark and you have to find your way through the room, you are desperate for any source of light you can find because you need to understand the lay of the room so that you don't stub your toe or run into something. You you need light in order to see truth. And sometimes we don't like it, do we? Maybe, Maybe when you get up in the morning and you turn the light on in the bathroom and you Look in the mirror, maybe, maybe the light is a little more truth than you want. But the light is essential for life, but it's also essential for truth. But there's something else that light does for us. Light brings us joy. If you go to parts of, uh, of our world uh, where it is dark for months at a time, you will find that the rate of depression and suicide in those places is higher. Because light brings joy. If you think about the difference on even just in somebody's temperament and mood after it's been cloudy and rainy for days and days and days on end and then the sun breaks through and suddenly everybody just seems a little bit happier than they were before because light also brings us joy. Now notice what Jesus says in this. He says, I am the light of the world. But notice that he uses the definite article. He doesn't say, I am a light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. Now, this is really important for us to understand because he's not saying, I simply reflect the light of the world. That's what every other religious leader has said. If you go back and you read the writings of the Buddha or you read uh, the writings of, of Muhammad, they all claim to be like the moon. What does the moon do? Does the moon have any light of its own? No, it doesn't. The moon simply reflects the light it gets from the sun. Jesus did not claim to be the moon. 
Jesus claimed, in fact, to be the light, not just a reflection of the light, but in fact, to be the light itself. Now, we, we see this is important, too, when you read the Old Testament and you read Isaiah in particular, 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah said that, behold, a light has dawned. The promise of the Savior, the promise of the Messiah, had always been that it would be a light. We see it in the Gospel of John at the very beginning of the Gospel of John. When John talks about a light has dawned, that the light has come, that Jesus was the light, is the light of the world. And then you also notice that if you read the story of the transfiguration, remember when Jesus went up on the mountain and took James, uh, John, and Peter up on the mountain with him. And, and he was up on this mountain and he was transformed. And the one word that's used to describe it is, is that he shone bright like a light. That his true nature was revealed to the disciples that Jesus is the light of the world. But, but what does this mean? So there's a condition, though, involved in this claim as well. A condition. He says, whoever follows me. Now, can anybody think of another verse in John, another, another famous verse in John, where John uses the word, I'll use King James here, whosoever. What is it? John, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him. He, it's a, this word is an important and critical word for us to understand as Christians. If you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, maybe you come from a different faith background, maybe you weren't raised in church at all, the word whosoever means you. It means me. It means all of us. It is a universal invitation that Jesus is making. But notice something that John said back in John chapter 1, verse 9. John tells us that the true light came into the world to everyone. He's very specific. But John also says, but some chose darkness. Some people choose to walk in darkness. You have chosen at different parts of your life, different times in your life, to walk in darkness. Maybe you were trying to deny the truth of something that was going on in your own life, in your own family. And it was easier to keep the lights off. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It, it was easier to avoid the truth than to see it. John tells us something important about the nature of people, the nature of humanity, that often we prefer the darkness to the light. But that doesn't change the fact that when Jesus came, the light was a universal invitation. The light was offered universally to anyone who would believe it. Now notice what else he says. Whosoever follows Follows is an important word and one that's used in the Gospels a lot. When Jesus went up to any of the disciples, remember when he went up to, to Peter and to Andrew and to James and to John, he said, come follow me. It's not just an invitation to walk behind Jesus, although that quite literally is what they did. But, but it's an invitation to enter into a relationship, that whoever would enter into a relationship with me, that this is the condition, whoever would follow after. And notice what he says, whoever would follow me, not someone else, very specific. He says, I am the light. It's not just a relationship with, uh, with a good teacher, a good pastor, a good Sunday school leader, although those relationships are important to us. But, but are we following are we accepting the invitation of Jesus to follow him because that's the condition that he is making here in this claim to be the light that whoever would follow me and then it follows up finally with a promise whoever follows me he says will have eternal life but he also says they will not walk in darkness they will have eternal life that's the promise that's a pretty big bold promise 
that if you will follow me, I will give you eternal life. So why did Jesus say this? Well, quite simply, Jesus was making an invitation. He's issuing an invitation to anyone who would hear, to anyone who would come after him, to anyone who would follow him. He's saying, you can have the light of life. It's no secret. It doesn't involve pilgrimages to the other side of the world. It doesn't involve praying at just the right time of the day, facing just the right direction. It doesn't involve reading through the scriptures uh, so many times in a, given, in a given period. It doesn't even involve any of the religious rituals that, that we often celebrate, the ritual of baptism or the ritual of the Lord's Supper. It doesn't involve any of those things. It's, it's the light for whoever would believe and receive the light. They would have the light of life. And you don't have to walk in darkness but the problem still remains we often prefer the darkness to the light but we have a problem because there's there's something about light that while we need it we need it for life we need it to know the truth we need it for joy there's also something about light that we often resist and avoid because the very thing that we need for life truth and joy is the very thing that will take away life that will blind us and that can destroy our joy think about this think about the sun itself and how the warmth of the sun is something that we long for especially in january even in the state of florida it just feels good to be in the sun But if you were to move a mile closer to the sun, it would destroy you. Even even where we are, even, even where we are right now, if you were to spend too much time in the sun without the proper covering, it would destroy you. Light can destroy you. And the very thing that reveals truth to us, being able to see in order to navigate through the darkness, is also the very thing that will blind you. That, that you can't look at the sun unfiltered for very long. If, if, I know you've all tried it at some point, maybe when you were a child. And you just look at the sun for as long as you can. And what happens when you look away? You can't see anything. Or you see spots. And it takes a while for your vision to come back. The very light that reveals truth is also the very light that can blind us. And because of both of those things, the light that often brings us joy can also destroy our joy. And so we have a problem. And the problem is the thing that we need is also the thing that can destroy us. And this is where Jesus' statement and Jesus' claim is so critical and why it is so important for you if you're here and you don't have a relationship with God and you wanted to know, how do I ever relate to this God? Why this particular claim of Jesus is so important for you? Because Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is the one who, who, who makes it so that we can have the life of the Son, have the light of life, without being worried about being destroyed by it. Jesus is the one who makes sure that we can have light for truth without being blinded by it. Jesus is the one who makes sure that we can have joy from light and not experience the, 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 the devastating effects of light. Do you remember the story in, in the book of Exodus? I referred to it earlier. In the 40 years that they wandered in the desert, and the scripture clearly says that there was a pillar of fire that would lead them at night and a cloud that would lead them by day. Jesus standing in the treasury, 
during the feast that celebrated how God provided for those, them in the 40 years. As he's standing in front of a candelabra that is to symbolize the very light that God provided for them in the desert. But it is extinguished. Because religion can't substitute for what God will do for you. Religion will never substitute for a relationship with God. In the middle of this setting, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. I am the very thing that can bring you life and can prevent you from being destroyed by that light. I am the very thing that can bring you truth without being blinded by the light that offers truth. I am the very thing that can bring joy in the face of the very thing that can also bring great devastation and destruction. In his, carna- in, his, in his incarnation, God took on flesh. He came to dwell among us. He came so that we could have a relationship with him. There's an old hymn that said, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. God. God, veiled in flesh. Do you get what, the, what, that, what that Christmas carol writer was saying? Charles Wesley penned those words. God, veiled in flesh, covered in flesh, so that we could see God. That we could see what he was like, and that's, that's how we have a relationship with God. Jesus wasn't a prophet or a priest or a teacher about God. He was God himself, and Jesus made that claim standing in the treasury at the feast. Now, how do we know it's true? Because you might be here, and you might be saying, well, all that sounds great, and that's pretty interesting, all the biblical history, all the Old Testament, and how all that comes together. But how do we know that what Jesus was claiming was true? Well, let me offer you three things. And let me also suggest that if you're if you asking that question, I'm not going to convince you in the next two minutes. So I want to challenge you. I want to dare you to go and study this for yourself. Because if it's true, it has eternal consequences for you. If it's not true, you haven't lost anything. But here are the three ways that we know that what Jesus was saying is true. The first way that we know is through the crucifixion. Look down at verse 28, chapter 8, John 8, verse 28, what Jesus said. Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Jesus said, if you want, you will know this is true when I am lifted up, when I am crucified, you will see the truth of what it is I'm telling you. But we also know that it's proven not just in his crucifixion, but more importantly, in the resurrection. That 2,000 years after this peasant Jewish carpenter was executed, people around the world are still talking about him. Why? Even the critics say there has to be a reason Why Jesus is set apart from the literally hundreds of other people in history who have claimed to be the Son of God or claimed to be the Messiah. I would say the reason Jesus is set apart, the reason we're still talking about Jesus, is because he didn't just die on the cross, as important as that was for the forgiveness of our sins, but three days later, God raised him from the dead. And then finally, the third piece of evidence is one you're sitting in right now it's the church, it's the light of his followers. See, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he turned to his disciples and his followers and he said, you are the light of the world. You should let your light so shine before others that they would glorify God in heaven. The, the light of the church has, has been shining around the world. If you, if, there's a reason 
why when you see hospitals in every major city in the world, they're off, they often have the name of a religious group or, or some biblical uh, name attached to them. Do you know why? Because it has been Christians throughout the years who have attended to the needs of the least of these in caring for the sick and the poor among us. And so hospitals, St. Vincent's, Baptist, Good Samaritan, all these hospitals come because the light of the church has been shining the truth of the message of Jesus for 2,000 years, and it's what we're called to do today. So what difference does this make for, for us? What difference does this make for you? Well, if you're here and you are a Christian, let me just point out a couple things about Jesus' statement that I am the light of the world that should impact you on a moment-by-moment and daily basis. The first thing is this, that if Jesus is in fact the light of the world, and if we understand how important light is for life and truth and joy, then it is Jesus' invitation for you to live a transparent and authentic life. The tendency of all history is that everything is ultimately revealed. And as a Christian, we are called to live lives of integrity. That we have to be the same we are on Tuesday as we are on Sunday. That we should be transparent. That the light of Christ shines in us when we avoid the darkness in our own private lives. Are you living a transparent life? Or do you have dark corners and crevices Maybe it's what you watch on TV. Maybe it's things you see on the internet. Maybe it's the way you treat people at work or, or in the community. Maybe it's just thoughts in your head and you don't even ever act on them. But there are deep-seated prejudices and hatreds that are inside of you like a cancer. Is the light of Christ shining inside of you, Christian? But it's also a call for us to live with excellence. Do you know, the only way that we see something is beautiful is as it reflects light. If, if, if there's no light, there's no, there's no such thing as beauty. How beautiful is your life in the sight of other people? You see, they may not share your beliefs. They may not share your worldviews. But can they see the beauty in you? Can they see the good of Christ being, being reflected off of you as his light shines off of you? And finally, that we make this light accessible, that we bring the warmth of the light of Christ into the world around us. Your light in different settings will often expose things and it will bring heat and warmth to people that so desperately need it. Christian, are you, are you following Jesus as the light of the world? Or do you prefer to control when you turn it on and off? Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice if Jesus cooperated with us and and he was the light only when we decided we wanted light in our life? Because that's how we often live, isn't it? It's how I try to live sometimes. Now, I want to talk about Jesus as the light of the world when I'm willing to live transparently, when I'm willing to live beautifully, when I'm willing to bring warmth. But when I want to retreat to the dark places of my heart, when I want to retreat to the dark places in the world, then I don't really want Jesus to be the light anymore. The problem is I don't get to decide when Jesus is light because he's always the light. And finally, if you're here and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, when you are looking for God, let me just challenge you. Let me just offer you the invitation to look to the light, to see the truth of who God is. 
That if you want to know God, you want to know the character of God, you want to know the nature of God, you look to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, uh, the great uh, English Baptist preacher, um, came to faith later in life. And he had been witnessed to by many people. They'd told him about Jesus. They'd explained the gospel to him. And one night in London in the late uh, 1850s, as he was making his way home, the weather was terrible. It was bad. And there was this little church sitting there. And so, uh, so, so Charles Spurgeon, as he's going by, decides he's just going to go into this little church. There was a service going on. But when he got into the little church, there were only just a couple people there. There were only a few people in the room. And the, the preacher hadn't even been able to make it. The weather was so bad. So one of the elders of the church... Uh, was was on the spot to have to preach and he had never preached before he, he didn't really know what he was doing and and uh, so he he got up there and the only thing he needed to do was to read a passage of scripture and he just read this same passage over and over and over he just kept repeating it for the whole time and Charles Spurgeon sat there in this empty church listening to the elder of this church read from Isaiah chapter 45 verse 22 and this is what it says look to me and be saved all ye ends of the earth Look to me and be saved, all ye ends of the earth. And the elder kept saying it. Look to me and be saved, all ye ends of the earth. Look to me. Look to me and be saved, all ye ends of the earth. And it suddenly clicked. It clicked inside Charles Spurgeon's mind that all along his search for God was simply about looking to Jesus That salvation was found in no other way and no religious ritual and no mystical experience and no secret knowledge. It was found by simply looking to Jesus and being saved. Maybe today you are here and you're tired of wandering in the darkness, looking for God, groping around as if maybe you can hopefully stumble onto him. And I would offer you the same invitation that Isaiah offered that was offered by that elder in that church in London, look to me and be saved, all ye ends of the earth. Look to Jesus. He stood in that room and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not wander in darkness, but will have eternal life. Look to Jesus and find God. Father, as we come to you today, we are reminded of the simple message that Jesus offered and which is why it is so often ignored because it almost sounds too simplistic that you, the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, could be known by understanding a Jewish peasant carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago And Father, maybe from living in the United States and hearing this message over the years, maybe we've just become inoculated to the truth of it. Maybe we've not really looked at it or considered it. But today, God, I would just say, for those who are here, who are looking for God, that they would hear the invitation to look to Jesus and see the light that they need. Maybe for some who are here, maybe they've been avoiding you, God, because they're afraid that your light will will bring death, that your light will blind them, that your light, far from bringing joy, brings discouragement and pain. And Lord, 
they need, they need the mediator. They need Jesus. Maybe to be a cloud in the midst of the day. Father, I, I pray whatever it is that we need, we come here with it, that we won't leave without it because you are here and you are offering it even as we gather for worship. Lord, for the Christians who are in the room, who want to treat Jesus as a flashlight, to turn on and turn off as is convenient. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us and help us to live in his light and to walk in the light as he is the light. That all of his beauty might be reflected off of your church into the darkness of this world and that people would be drawn to you because of that light. Lord, we love you. And we pray, Father, that you'll move and you'll work in this time. For we ask it in the name of the one who is the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Amen.